Well, before we get to the text this morning uh, in John 10, I just want to mention if you, uh, you may have noticed if you're sitting on the center aisle, um, there is a little pad there in the middle. Um, this is something that we're starting this morning that uh, if you were a part of uh, WBC pre-COVID, uh, you will remember this, um, <laughs> which seems like ages ago. So, um, so uh, these are called the Connect Pad, and this is for members and regular attenders. Um, we'll, there'll be an opportunity later in the service to fill these out, but basically we're just asking if you're a member or regular attender, if you will just jot your name down there. Um, this is all a part for us as elders to shepherd the flock well. First uh, Peter, I just want to read a quick text to you from First Peter that we've been meditating on and thinking about as elders. We've been talking through the passages that teach us uh, and instruct us how to function as elders, and this is one of those passages. Here's what it says. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so you can see the command there, one of the commands there is to shepherd the flock. And the reason for these pads is not some sinister motive at all. It's to find out if you're here on Sundays or not. Um, if you're not here several weeks in a row, we want to be able to know that. And as much as we try to look around and see and make note of who's here, sometimes I'll be up here preaching and I'll say, so-and-so wasn't there today. And my wife will say, well, yes, they were. They were sitting on the second row. We just don't happen to notice everyone. So we just want to know that you're here or that you're not here so that we can make sure we're paying attention and shepherding and exercising oversight well. So that's the whole goal for these pads. Um, and so we're asking at the end of the service when we do announcements every week for you just to jot your name down and pass it down the aisle. If you're a visitor, you can just let it go right by you, and that is no problem at all. So that's the reason for those, and we're going to start making that a consistent practice on Sunday mornings so that we can shepherd well. Uh, John 10 is where we're going to be this morning. Before we get there, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the passage. All right, let's pray. Father, we're very grateful to be alive to be here this morning, to be able to open your word and study the words of life that you have given to us. We thank you for this gospel that we have been looking at and uh, studying over the past few months, and I pray this morning that you would open our eyes to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So often we sort of skim over the picture that you have for us of him in this gospel and in the scriptures, but I pray this morning that you would cause us to pause, cause us to pay attention, and help us to look deeply at the picture that we see of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then may that picture compel our hearts to worship. Holy Spirit, please be with us now, enlighten our eyes to your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Like most of you, or some of you, I enjoy a good cup of coffee in the morning. That is no surprise. I've mentioned that before. And I will admit, I've been drinking coffee now for about 10 years. My taste regarding a cup of coffee in the morning has changed a bit over the years. I would say it's become more refined over the past 10 years. Not snobby, but refined. I now appreciate every morning I try to 
grind the beans before I put them in the maker. I know, I know it sounds snobby, it's not, trust me. I try to put the right proportion of coffee to water because that makes a difference. And the next step in this phase of enjoying a good cup of coffee that I've not fully developed yet, some of you may be aware of this, but there is an official golden zone of temperature that the water is supposed to be at when it hits the coffee grounds and begins to percolate down through them. Some of you may be aware of this, but I'll tell you, that golden zone of temperature is 195 degrees to 205 degrees. And if you have that right temperature and everything is, is going the way it should, when it hits those coffee beans, it will extract the most and the best flavor from them. Now you are informed. <laughs> So let me ask you a question regarding my development and love and appreciation for a good cup of coffee and the opposite, my desire to stay away from a low quality cup of coffee, all right? So you got two things going on, a love for a good cup of coffee and then a desire to stay away from a low quality cup of coffee. Here's the question, did I develop my love for a better cup of coffee by constantly telling myself how bad the low quality cup is? Is that how I developed a taste for good coffee and started to explore all of these different ways to make it better? I just thought, well, this is really bad, really bad. I don't want this, this is bad coffee. Is that, is that how I went about it? Well, of course not. And you know that's true when you're developing a taste for something. The way it went about is I constantly or I, I consistently experienced the goodness of this and I saw and appreciated the goodness of this and then because I was developing my taste here, this just didn't appeal to me anymore. I didn't want this anymore. Now you know probably where I'm going with this, but this is the exact way that your spiritual life is meant to work in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You're meant to see his glory and then everything else that would compete with his glory fades away. A Puritan author, John Owen, put it like this. This is one of the most beneficial quotes in my life or has been for several years now. On Christ's glory, the diversity of his attributes, who he is, on Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes. And I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. This is one of the reasons that we're studying the Gospel of John. Sometimes it may seem abstract. Sometimes you may think, well, there wasn't a list of things that I could do this week in response to the sermon, and that's exactly right. We want to see the glory of Christ, and as our faith in Christ is built, then the painted beauties of this world will wither in our eyes. They will fade away. We won't want them anymore because we have this, and when we have this, why would we want this? But this requires us this transition in our tastes, in our affections, and our loves, it requires us to spend time to actually understand who Jesus is and the picture that the Gospel of John paints of him. 
If our hearts are going to fall in love with him, we have to see him for who he is, and we have to see his glory as it is expressed in the Gospel of John. So throughout this Gospel, Jesus has been presented as glorious. His glory has been tied to his relationship with God the Father. Over and over again, that has been the point. You're to believe in him, yes, but why? Because he is related to the Father in the way he is, because he's sent from the Father. This has been a major point of emphasis in this gospel. It's to tie Jesus, the Word, to the Father. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right off the bat, we're meant to understand the whole gospel in the context of the relationship between the Father and the Word the Son. We've been studying chapters 5 through 10 over, I guess it's been a couple of months now. In these chapters, they all go together. We've seen Jesus perform signs. We've seen him perform miracles. He's been teaching at various Jewish festivals, and he's always connecting himself to these celebrations and presenting himself as the fulfillment of these celebrations. They all point to him. But as he goes on and teaches, one of the main things that he teaches over and over again is about his relationship with the Father. He keeps going back to it, almost to the point where, as we're studying it, I feel like I'm beating the same drum every week, talking about how Jesus is sent from the Father. He relates to the Father over and over again. This gospel has been emphasizing this. It's foundational. Why? Why does this matter so much that Jesus, the Christ, is one with the Father? Why has that been the point of emphasis so often and so repeatedly in the Gospel of John? That's the question that I want you to think through, and that's the question we're going to go after this morning in this passage in John chapter 10. And in this passage, we're going to get a couple of the most explicit statements regarding Jesus' relationship to the Father. And there's a reason for this. It's like the whole of chapters 5 through 10 has led up to this point. It's coming to a conclusion here in chapter 11. We're going to get into one of my favorite stories with the raising of Lazarus. Just an amazing miracle and an amazing story that we're going to get into next week. But this section, chapters 5 through 10, is coming to a conclusion, and it's like John is going to hit the same note again, just with more clarity, so that we can understand what this whole thing has been about. We can see that Jesus really is one with the Father, and we can see why it matters so much. So John 10, 22 to 42 is where we'll be, and we're going to ask that simple question that I just gave you. Why does it matter that Jesus is one with the Father? Why does this matter? Two answers to this. First of all, our, those who are his sheep, our eternal security relies on it. It is based on it. John 10 is where we're going to be. So at the beginning of John 10, Jesus talked about being the good shepherd. You remember that from last week? He gave this whole metaphor and this whole illustration of the sheepfold and him being the the gate into the sheepfold and him being the shepherd of the sheep. And we know that that happened sometime after this second Jewish festival, the Feast of Booths. Remember the the light where he said, I'm the light of the world. He's the living water. All of that happened at the Feast of Booths, which was the second major Jewish festival. That festival took place in the seventh month of the year. 
And so now we've moved beyond that festival, and you'll see here in verses 22 and 23 of John 10 that we're now at the third major Jewish festival. And again, events take place with Jesus around one of these celebrations. Look at verses 22 and 23. We have a new feast here. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So this one, the Feast of Dedication, took place in the ninth month, right? So Passover begins the year, then you have the Feast of Booze in the seventh month, seventh month, and then in the ninth month, toward the end of the year, you have this celebration, the Feast of Dedication. Now, you're probably more familiar with this than you would realize, given that name, Feast of Dedication, we call this Hanukkah now. It's celebrated for us around Christmas time. This is a feast that is not mentioned or laid out in the Old Testament. And the reason for this is because the events that led to this celebration took place between the closing of the Old Testament canon and the New Testament, the events of Jesus Christ here. This feast, this celebration, celebrated the Maccabean Revolt. And what happened is in 165 BC, so 150, 165 years before Jesus came on the scene, the Jews captured back Jerusalem after the temple had been defiled by a Syrian leader. And it's important to note this feast and the events that happened that led to this feast with the, uh, the Jews freeing their land from foreign oppression because of what they asked Jesus in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ or the Messiah, tell us plainly. So the Maccabean revolt influenced their expectations for the Messiah because this revolt freed the people from foreign oppression. And so they very much tied the coming of Messiah to freedom from foreigners. And at this time, obviously the Roman Empire is oppressing the people and ruling over the Jewish people. And so they have political deliverance on the brain at this time. It's this feast, it's this celebration. They're thinking about these events that happen, and so they have this on their mind. And so they ask this question here. In addition to the political deliverance being on their brain, now I think this is the culmination of all the conversations and all the arguments and everything that has happened in chapters 5 through 10 that has led up to this. There's sort of been this dancing around the issue in some ways. Some has been more explicit than others, but there have been all these conversations and arguments, and it's, it's like Jesus has sort of danced around this, not been quite as clear as they want him to be, and so now they ask him to give them a straightforward answer. Jesus responds in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And Jesus says here, look, if you would have listened to my teaching and been open to it, I have been quite clear. You would already have the answer to your question. Jesus hasn't spoken in direct terms. He did with the Samaritan woman. He proclaimed himself as the Messiah, as the Christ. He hasn't spoken regarding this question in direct terms yet. 
But everything that he has said and all of his works have pointed to him being the Christ, the Messiah. And they've pointed to his relationship with God. In Jesus' mind, those two things go together, and the Jews are not quite as clear on that yet. But they have a deeper problem here as to why they don't pick up on what the works are communicating about Jesus. Look at verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, Jesus is not saying that they aren't responsible, that they're off the hook because they weren't among Jesus's or God the Father's sheep. They are responsible, but what he's doing here is emphasizing God's sovereign grace and calling those who will believe. And that, their salvation, the salvation of his sheep and his keeping of them is where he now turns the attention in verse 27. And as he turns the attention here to their spiritual salvation, of the spiritual salvation of his followers, this is where he's going to more clearly define his understanding of what it means to be the Messiah. So he's answering their question just sort of in an indirect way, and when he answers their question, he's going to draw it back to his relationship with God the Father. So look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The Jews have a terrible misconception about who Messiah is, and now he's moving the conversation toward their spiritual salvation. Continue to read. Verse 28. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So when Jesus gives eternal life, which is one of the main things he does in his role as Messiah, no one can take his sheep out of his hand. And it matters immensely that the same work that is being done by Jesus in keeping his sheep is done by the Father. Look at verse 28 again and verse 29. You can see the same language is used here to talk about Jesus and to talk about the Father. 28 they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And then verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And then, of course, in verse 30, he gives the reason for that, why they're both involved in the same work, because he's one with the father. So let me try to clarify this for you. I want to follow a chain for you from verse 25, all right? Okay, so... Verse 25, Jesus does works. That's what he's done throughout the gospel. They're recorded in this gospel and they point to who he is. So what do you do in response to those works? You believe in the works, you see them, you believe that they tell us who Jesus is and you follow Jesus, verses 26 and 27. You become one of his sheep. When you become one of his sheep because you believe in the works that he has done and you believe in who he is, then you receive eternal life. And when you receive eternal life as one of his sheep and one of his followers, it is secure because Jesus now has you, verse 28. He's not going to let you go. And you can be confident in your eternal life that you have because Jesus has you. And verse 29, the Father has you, and the Father is greater than all. 
The Father has you because Jesus has you as his sheep. Why? Because they are one. Verse 30. Jesus does not lose any of his sheep. He keeps them. But it's not just a passive guarding of them. I want to make sure you understand this. It's not, it's not like you, you might think of Fort Knox, where they just set up all these defenses, and they have guns, and they have walls, and they have barbed wire, and they're going to keep anyone from getting in. Jesus actively keeps and protects his sheep through the Spirit, and the Spirit works to change you. If you are God's child, he uses everything in your life to sanctify you and to keep you. He uses your circumstances, your experience. He uses your spiritual missteps to bring you to repentance, to show you who he is, to sanctify you, and to keep you for himself. And this is one of the great realities that the oneness of Jesus with the Father brings to us. Because he's one with the Father, our eternal security is set and cannot be taken away. One of the clearest and most helpful passages in this regard is in Romans 8, and I want you to flip over there with me. I'm going to read a chunk of this to you. Romans 8, we'll start in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. How do I know that God will keep me, that he will guard me, that he will protect me, that when I believe in him, My eternal life is secure. Verse 33 tells you. God's not going to let anything steal his sheep away when he sent his son to ransom you from sin and bring you into the family. He's for you. If he went to that extent to secure you into his family, he's not going to let you slip away. Verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. At the end of the day, the greatness of God is the overwhelming power, his keeping power of his love. This is, this is what our eternal life depends on. It's his love given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And practically speaking, it's this, this is the place where you and I must go every day to reassure ourselves when we struggle, to build our faith. It's to go back to God's love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, to wake up every single morning and remember and reflect on 
the, the secure love that God has for you given in Christ. A never-ending, all-powerful, guarding, keeping, and actively maintaining love that God has for you. Every day, go back there and remember this. And all of that is built and based on the fact that Jesus is one with the Father. Now, getting back to John 10 here, the Jews hear him say this, that he's one with the Father, and they know exactly what he's he's getting at and what he's claiming. Look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And after they do this, the conversation ensues. And this brings us to our second answer to this question. So our eternal security relies on Christ's oneness with the Father. And secondly, our knowledge of God depends on it. This is a much more significant point than you may be thinking initially, and we will get to that. But look at how Jesus responds in verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? Interesting here, Jesus keeps the focus on his relationship with the Father, right? The works are from the Father. And so he's trying to go back to this point again about his oneness with the Father. Notice here that he says these are good works. It's the same word that is used as the good shepherd. Noble, beautiful, excellent. So these works that he's been doing are fitting as works that come from the Father. The Jews respond in verse 33. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. This is the only time that Jesus is accused of blasphemy here in this gospel. They've sought to kill him before. They've understood some of the implications of what he's saying. But here they actually accuse him of blasphemy. Jesus responds, 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, this is a little tricky here, okay? I love the Old Testament quotes in the New Testament and love to try to explain them. This one's a little tricky to understand. So let me try to break this down as simply as I can. Jesus is entering into a rabbinic debate here, and he's quoting Psalm 82 and verse 6. You can go back later and read Psalm 82. Here's what's happening. The argument, the point he's making, is taking something lesser and moving to something greater. If this thing is true, then certainly this thing is true. So in Psalm 82, God is speaking And he uses this word, gods, to refer to someone other than himself. So there's some debate about who exactly he's referring to. We don't have to get into all that. But the basic idea is to understand he's using that word to refer to someone other than himself. Jesus and the Jews both believe in the clarity and the the inerrancy of the Old Testament and so Jesus is saying, look, if God used this word here to talk about someone that is clearly not God, then why do you accuse me of blasphemy when I'm using the designation son of God? Now, it's clear from elsewhere in John that, 
and even from what Jesus says here, that he's the Father consecrated him and sent him into the world, and that Jesus is much more than just another being whom God calls gods, right? He's much more than that. But Jesus is pointing this out here to say to them, look, I used this designation and you guys freaked out and said I'm blasphemous, but the scripture uses this designation and so when I use it, you need to investigate it. You need to look into it. You need to figure out exactly what I'm getting at when I use this. Just using the phrase is not wrong because of what the Bible says. So you need to look into it. That's what he means in verse 37. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. He's saying, look, I use this phrase. I'm claiming to be the son of God. So look at the works. Analyze what I've been doing. Look at my teaching. Look at who I am. He wants them to take what he's been doing and to match his works up with what they know about God the father. That's what he wants them to do. And they're not willing to investigate at any level. So he says, match my works up. Is God the type of God who would heal a blind man and a lame man? Go ahead, investigate the works and compare the works to the claims that I am making. And what does Jesus think the end result of that investigation should be? Look at verse 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, why? Look at the works, analyze them, and here's what I think the end result of this should be. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. A little bit different language here, but the same idea as verse 30, right? I'm one with the Father, same idea. The Father's in me and I am in the Father. The point is that the works that Jesus has been doing point toward his oneness with the Father. So this is the end goal. This is where faith happens in the Gospel of John. You you see his works, and ultimately it results in your belief that Jesus, the man who walked the earth and did these things, who died on the cross and then rose from the dead, is one with the Father. It's to believe that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in him. Jesus says a similar thing to Philip. Look at this. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Why does this matter so much? that he's in the Father and the Father. Why does he keep driving back to this point? It's because of what he says right before this text. Oops, I went the wrong way. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? This is the point. You see Jesus and you see the Father. This is the second answer to our question. Why does this matter so much? Because Jesus comes into the world and gives us the knowledge and the revelation of the creator God of the universe. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, right? He reveals God, John 1, 14 through 18. He reveals God to us. We have clarity now regarding the character of God. So here's the point. 
our knowledge of God, which what can be more important than that? Knowing the creator God of the universe, the one who made everything, knowing who he is, understanding why he created everything, the purpose that he has for our lives and for what he has made. What is he like? What could be more important than that? And our knowledge of God depends on Jesus's oneness with the Father. Without the light that Jesus shines and the understanding that his light is God's light, we don't have that knowledge. His character is God's character. When you see Jesus act in these gospels on this earth, you are seeing the heart of God. You are understanding what God is like. Without that, if Jesus has a different will or desire or goal in his ministry, if it's different than the Father's, we don't know what God is like. Then we are left asking, what is God's disposition toward me? I don't know. How do you know that God is not in heaven grumpy with you this morning? How do you know that? How do you know that he actually wants to save you and will follow through on that? You know, and you can be confident in that because Jesus is God. One author put it like this. I love this. Let us then be rid of that horrid, sly idea that behind Jesus, the friend of sinners, what a wonderful phrase, there is some more sinister being, one thinner on compassion and grace. There cannot be. Jesus is the Word. He is one with his Father. He is the radiance, the glow, the glory of who his Father is. If God is like Jesus, then though I am sinful like the dying thief, I can dare to say, remember me. I know he will respond. Though I am so spiritually lame and leprous, I can call out to him, for I know just what he is like toward the weak and sick. When Jesus acts on earth, we see what God is like. The God who you cannot see, he's invisible. You now see what he is like. 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. All the character of God. That's what we mean by glory. It's God's eminence, his character shining out. So we have the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face of Jesus Christ. We see God through Christ. So what do we see of God? What specifically do we see? We see the love of God put forth. We see that the creator God of the universe loves his creation. And he demonstrates that love to us through Christ. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What do you see? You see a God who seeks and saves the lost. He pursues, he goes after his wayward creatures. We see a God through Jesus and his actions on earth who has compassion toward those who are broken by sin. 
I mean, think about what the healing of the man born blind reveals to us about the disposition and character of God the Father. That's God acting as Jesus acts. When Jesus looks out at the multitudes and has compassion on them because they are as sheep without a shepherd, what does that tell us about God? What is the creator God of the universe like? On the other hand, when Jesus gets riled up and angry about the arrogant religious leaders who exploit the poor and they bind religious burdens on people, what does that tell us about God's disposition toward the proud and the arrogant? We know about God's wisdom, his ability to take all of the information in the entire universe, it's at his disposal, and then to use that information to the best possible ends. We know about his wisdom, his love, his mission-oriented mindset. He sent the Son. We know about the Trinity. We know that the Father and the Son have eternally been in a relationship of delight through the Spirit. We know about God's mercy. We know about God's desire to overcome the brokenness of the world and to put things right. We know about all of that because Jesus is one with the Father. John Owen again. All that may be known of God for our salvation, especially his wisdom, love, goodness, grace, and mercy on which the life of our souls depends are represented to us in all their splendor in and through Christ. No wonder then that Christ is glorious in the eyes of believers. And that's what we're trying to get at this morning. That's what we want in this study of the Gospel of John, to develop a taste for Christ as he is revealed in the Gospels so that your heart will be drawn to him and then the painted beauties of the world will wither away. Rest assured this morning that we have the knowledge of God that we need. It's there. It's accessible to us through the Gospels. We have the knowledge that we need. This morning, you can walk out of here fully confident of God's character. We know what God is like. And you can be confident and totally assured Tonight, as you lay in your bed and wonder about your salvation, you can be totally assured that God will keep you by his power and his grace. You can be assured of his disposition toward you today. He's not frustrated. He is not grumpy with you. He loves you so much that he demonstrated that love by sending his son to die for you. And it's as you see that and you grow in your confidence in who he is that your taste for sin will lessen and your desire for God will increase. To make it your goal, to know Christ, to explore all the beautiful facets of his character that ultimately point you to the creator God of the universe, the Father. Make it your goal to know Christ to the point where your heart delights in and worships him for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this picture that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ, the clarity of your word this morning. I pray that you would help us. Holy Spirit, move beyond the words that I've said and, and just work through them into people's hearts. I cannot motivate build affection, change minds, change hearts. None of that is within my capability, nor would I want it to be. But this morning, 
We tried to be faithful to the text of Scripture and the picture of Jesus Christ that we see here. And I pray that you would use that in our, our hearts and lives. We thank you for our time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.